the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety, twists, endings, and all, without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're looking at 2009 British sci-fi drama, Moon. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole plot. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen Moon, go away, watch it now, and then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. I'm going to give you this introduction, even though it's not necessary. All it needs is a bar of music, one bar of music. And I'll prove that in a little while, but I'll go through the motions because otherwise our producer will just think I'm being lazy. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that I'm using minimalism as a metaphor for the film Moon, but I really am far too lazy for that. For Duncan Jones's directorial debut, he created a future in which we mine resources from the moon to solve our energy consumption issue. The movie was created for and stars Sam Rockwell, whose character Sam Bell is coming towards the end of his three-year solitary caretaker role on the dark side of the moon. Three years is a long haul, you know, it's way, 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 way too long. I'm talking to myself on a regular basis. Sam does have some company in the form of Gertie. Voiced by Kevin Spacey, Gertie is a computer-stroke-house-robot kind of affair with a not-too-dissimilar manner from 2001's Hal. I'm here to keep you safe, Sam. Are you hungry? Any film needs a bit of luck, and as Moon was filmed during the writer's strike, it benefited from some of the best effects artists in the business suddenly becoming available, which added to Jones's already capable skills from working in TV advertising. I think the biggest problem we had is that people were concerned how are you actually going to do this for the money that you're asking, doesn't this need to be a bigger budget? And because of our experience in, in commercials, we really were able to say, look, we really do know how to do this. You're going to have to take it on faith that we know how that we're going to do this for the money. Snubbed from the Oscars, but recognised widely elsewhere, Moon was a critical success. Its release, coinciding with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, may have something to do with its more moderate box office return. However, increasingly, it's NASA's approval audiences look to when films are set in space. Some kind of authenticity is required in science fiction these days. Moon mining and building a station using the moon's own resources are all in the grand plan, apparently. Who'd have thought all the energy we ever needed right above our heads? The power of the moon. The power of our future. So what can I play you that could possibly replace a scripted introduction for the film Moon? Pink Floyd? David Bowie? Too easy. Something from Sting, maybe, as his wife, Trudy Styler, produced the film. Nope. The Girl is Mine by Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney, because there's an obscure reference to the line, I'm a lover, not a fighter, in the film. I'm genuinely tempted, but no. The girl is mine. It's this. From 28 minutes and 8 seconds in, moments before the big reveal, it's note perfect for the suspense that Moon brings and the eerie atmosphere it creates. And to prove that point, here it is again, because you weren't paying enough attention the first time around.
Later in the show, inspired by Sam Rockwell's long career as a supporting actor before landing the lead in Moon, we'll be taking a closer look at some other notable supporting actors. But first, joining me in the studio is a man that is hoping I'm not going to use a lazy play on words with the word moon to mean bottom. It's Andy Goulding. And secretly hoping that I'm going to use a lazy play on the word moon to mean bottom. It's Rachel Burnett. Hello. Hello. Uh, Now, everyone. Hello. Hello. So, Andy, a film set in space where we don't lose Matt Damon seems almost pointless, right? (laughs) Um, I I wasn't sure what to expect coming to this, actually. I was very... uh, in general, I'm not a big sci-fi fan, really. But I realised watching this, that I do like a lot of sci-fi. It's just that I like really like the sci-fi of ideas rather than like big space battles and things like that. So I was never a big fan of like Star Wars or anything like that. What? Uh, I know that's that's a conversation for another time. Man alive. But uh, <laughs> uh, but I I do like little simple ideas that have something built out of them. Not not big like over complex ideas. I think too much sci-fi confuses complexity with coolness. I mean, when I watched Inception, I nearly put my foot through the TV screen. But what? Watching... <laughs> it's getting Again, worse. Another, another Andy, time. I'm starting. I'm starting to think that the blue tones is the only thing you and I have in common. <laughs> next, you'll tell me you're starting to go off them. <laughs> They're all right. but yeah watching this I I really enjoyed this film and it's a I think I I really like sci-fi it's about character and it's about situation and this is is very much that it's mainly just one guy and a computer who eventually becomes two guys when we meet his clone later on but uh, for me it it didn't feel necessarily like a sci-fi film I felt it belongs to a separate sort of category of films it's like the debut indie film and there's these these great little films like uh, Richard Linklater's Slacker Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket or the the, the classic of this subgenre would probably be the Coen Brothers Blood Simple but they're, they're just like small you can always it's almost like watching claymation where you can see the uh, the animator's fingerprints on those early claymation animation films and you can see you can see the director working at it but it, it just makes it all the more endearing all the more it, it just invests it with this energy and passion that makes you enjoy it even more and so that's that's what drew me into this film more than the story more than the space setting or anything and once it had me i was i was with it all the way yeah exactly i mean this this kind of thing in theory could have been based anywhere but rachel did you did you enjoy your time on the moon i absolutely love it i think this is possibly my suggestion um, It was, yeah. yeah i just first time i saw it and i've only seen it twice when i first watched it when it first came out and then couple of nights ago and um it just blows me away because i just love the performances or the performance really it's just one one person but it feels like so many more and the voice of gertie as well kevin space is just brilliant and the soundtrack is sensational and you know i'm into my soundtracks yeah yeah as soon as it started that that opening the the bit of piano and then the spookiness and then oh it's just Mm, it's juicy. It's really nice. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it had me from the from the very, from the get-go. And I love physical effects and it's all models and, oh, it's just perfect. The makeup's wonderful. And it's just, it's a little masterpiece. I love it. It is excellent. It is excellent. I was very pleased when we had our meeting about what we were going to watch. And I was very pleased that we were going to watch this. I'm not even, I, I don't know, this is the second time I've seen it. I don't know, in some ways I'm pleased I've seen it twice now because there you know, I'd, forgot, I'd actually forgotten what happened. <laughs> I knew, I knew, I didn't know how it ended. I knew that uh, there, there are clones involved. And, you know, this is the beauty. We're called Spoiler, uh, and so we can get around this. I mean, imagine when this was released, they must have been skirting around mm. this quite quite a lot. Although, actually, some of the reviews that I'm sort of going back on doing a bit of research, people were pretty open about the fact that it is. Actually, though, 
that is a, it is a spoiler. It is a you know when when he he goes down that shaft and we hear that perfect bit of music as he steps down there, as you'll have heard in the introduction, um, and it just adds to the mystery of it. And then he sees himself. Now, I, very very luckily, I remember the first time around, I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know anything about the film at all. Brilliant. It's always the way you go to any film, and it was it was scary and frightening and, and, and wonderful. And then you start the story starts to 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 unravel, and it's it's brilliant. And it's perfection is its exposition and its subtleness in that exposition and and that no one's then narrating the story or telling the story you're working it all out for yourself yeah. you're doing some work here but actually you want to do the work you don't feel oh god i've got to do some work here it's, it's quite a funny thing for us to be talking almost very much about the end of the film now mm. because it just it does play its cards and some of his critics have said that it does play its cards too open too soon i, I, I don't know i don't how do, you, how do you feel about that rachel what do you think i don't know i'm <laughs> I think it gets out of the way because you don't, you, to, you don't want to be going. What's going on here? Mm. What, what, what is it? You kind of want that reveal, so then you can focus more on the character and, and the effect on the character and how do you cope with knowing that you're dying and what the brand new you that hasn't quite gone through three years of that. What? How are you then? And they're so different, but they're mm-hmm. the same person. And so you can concentrate on that more. If yeah. it was all about the twist, if it all went a bit M Night Shyamalan, then you mm. know you'd be like, oh, oh, is there a big twist? Yeah. But that's out of the way. You yeah. know, it's like right, I can concentrate on this now. I, I agree. I think it, it certainly needed to be there, but also found it refreshing that it was mm. so. So, oh, good, that's got that out of the way. Right yeah. now, yeah, yeah. Now, now we can carry on and enjoy the film. How about when you know the same actor is playing? two roles and acting with itself in, in the same thing. Can you ever concentrate on that, Andy? Can you can you throw that away from your mind? I can't. I cannot. I simply cannot. Uh, um, and think, oh, so who's that guy? He's talking to himself there, but he needs to be talking to someone on the screen. Have they split the screen somehow? Have they? But obviously, they rest, he's touching that person. They can't do that. That must be another person. Who is it? Why is it? How did that happen? That's, that's going through my mind when the two Sams are having a bit of a wrestle. Well, it, it, it wasn't for me, surprisingly. I often find that's the case, especially if you're watching something like uh, that old episode of Columbo where they're twins and they're, they're, on, they're, they're constantly on one side of the screen and the other side of the screen yeah. but I thought it was it was done so well not just in, in terms of effects but in terms of Sam Rockwell's performance he divided yeah. up those characters brilliantly and the way they interact with each other is superb and they they mine so much out of it as well not just like the plot but they got I thought they got a lot of really good comedy out of it I mean this this is a film where a lot of people have talked about its influences and I think it wears them very much on its sleeve obvious ones like Silent Run in 2001 Solaris things like that but for a while in this film I thought it turned into the odd couple (laughs) I was I really enjoyed it I mean that that scene where he's playing Walking on Sunshine is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Uh, and uh, that was, I mean, doesn't this this film also uses pop music really well, mm. I think. Not not in a stupid sort of soundtrack way, but like that, that Walking on Sunshine bit is great. And also this, this thing where he wakes up to Chesney Hawks' I Am The One And Only, which the first time you hear it, you think, oh, well, that's funny, it's appropriate because he's on his own. And then the next time you hear it, you find out he's got a clone, so it's even better. <laughs> And in, even in those moments where he's waking up to the same song, it it made me think of Groundhog Day. Oh yeah! So there's, there's lots of there's lo- it's not just a sci-fi film. It's it's so there's so many influences packed in there that uh, that make this so special. Mm. I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you think this needed to even be a sci-fi film? Uh, I don't think it, it it needed to be, but I think it it works very well as one. But yeah. I, I wasn't sat there thinking, right, I'm 
and watching sci-fi. I was involved with the characters and not thinking about the... I mean, uh, when I talked about Inception earlier and everyone was shocked that I didn't like it, <laughs> uh, exposition was a big deal for me and that. I, I felt that the characters just wouldn't shut up about what was going on. They kept explaining it to me. And then we go, oh, and now there's a big city fo- folding in half. And I, was, I'm, I'm, I like smaller things than that. And so I was like you, Rachel, with the, the little models and things. I feel a lot more involved with that. One thing that came to my mind as a, a big influence on it as well was uh, in series one of Red Dwarf, there's an episode called Me Too, yes. where Rimmer uh, reproduces <laughs> yeah. himself and yet they don't get on with each other. And he, he yeah. dev- that very much there on either side of the screen, I think. So you <laughs> yeah. can see. But, but Chris Barry's performance, he, he brings out this sort of nastiness and, and I felt that was in there as well. Mm. Yeah, I uh, thought of that. And also John Carpenter's Dark Star, which was in turn an influence on Red Dwarf itself. Those were the films that I went to as a as a big influence on mm. it but I mean I've talked to almost non-stuff about the influences on it and they were all there but that for me was part of what made it unique as well it was like a little playful game it was like when we read Ready Player One and I was picking out references in that I felt like I was doing the same thing in this but I mean this film is like a big jigsaw puzzle to start off with I think when you're watching it and so as you're piecing together the plot you're also piecing together the process of the production and how it was made and that was a lot of fun. Then when I watched it the second time round, and I was relieved of putting the puzzle together, then I started to hone in on all these little details as well. And so I think I got even more out of it the second time. And like you, Paul, I think I do really like it, and I probably will watch it again in future, but I think I don't think I'll ever enjoy it as much as I did that second time mm. when I knew what, I knew everything about it, but I still was sort of tuning into the little details that make it up and those little details and i think i think probably the the biggest and most outstanding influence that jumps down everyone's throat is is the the howl uh, which in this case is gertie by kevin spacey which is just beautifully played isn't oh, it i love gertie i love the little emojis yeah oh yeah as yeah. well his little, when he's when he's muddled up and he's like oh i'm confused and mm. his little little emoji goes confused and i think it's an incredibly sympathetic character and i think genius idea of having kevin spacey do the voice as well because yeah. he's just got the best voice i I was actually, I would have preferred if it wasn't Kevin Spacey because it took me out of it a little bit more. I mean, I know Sam Rockwell's famous, but he's so kind of strange and unusual that I I don't think there's Sam Rockwell. I go with whatever he's creating. But when the computer came along and it was Kevin Spacey's voice, I found it so recognisably Kevin Spacey that it, it felt to me like, you know those people who reprogram their sat-nav so it sounds like Mr T? It felt like he'd, he'd done that with Gertie to, uh, to make Kevin Spacey. I w- almost wanted something a bit more removed, so a voice that I didn't recognise to come out of Gertie. Uh, particularly the first time I saw it because there was that that thing in the back of my head of, well, is Gertie helping him out or is Gertie going to be malevolent and like Hal in 2001? And so I thought for Kevin Spacey to do the voice for me, just I thought, oh, there's Kevin Spacey. It was a little bit... Mm. Oh, see, what? I think it enhanced it because I think you hear Kevin Spacey and you go, oh... Now then, he's been a serial killer and he's been, in, we know he's deceitful because of usual suspects and hmm, which way is he going to go this time? And it's, I think it added a little bit of which way is it going to go here? Yeah, you see, for, for me, that was the problem. I did oh. think, I did think American Beauty, usual suspects. So I was thinking about it was there's the actor Kevin Spacey, not hmm. here's Gertie. I, mean, Gert, I agree Gertie was beautifully done. I loved the little, the little faces on it and everything. Mm. And, and the way it was so kind of, there were coffee stains and post-it yes. notes stuck to it and everything. That, that was fantastic. A nice little touches there. But why a programmed machine 
that at one point was having a direct conversation with the people back on Earth. Matt Berry, let's, let's pick up yeah, on Matt Berry. Matt yeah. Berry was in this. And Benedict Wong, Benedict who were both Wong. in IT crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I didn't, I didn't, sorry, I didn't, pick, I didn't pick up on that. But he was obviously working for the company, programmed by the company. Why did he, why did he help? Why, this is a, this is because a, he had a critical one point. directive to help Sam. Mm-hmm. And eventually, flaw, I mean, he's, he's been there three <laughs> years as well, and he's artificially intelligent, so he's probably learning. Mm. And so he probably realises, actually, to help Sam, this is what I need to do in the long term. He's had three years to think about it as well, and he's seen this happen again and again. I don't know if he's been rebooted before, but I don't think he has. And so over the course of these people dying, he's, he's learning too. So, yeah, his directive, help Sam. So we did. It was an interesting parallel as well that I thought in that, well, essentially what we're watching here, there is no kind of, we're seeing, we're watching clones and computers. And that I, I felt there was a sort of parallel in, in what they sort of, oh, I nearly said journey again. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I said didn't. journey in the last show and uh, <laughs> I, I hate myself using that word. But the uh, <laughs> the journey they go on. Uh, <laughs> All right, I Simon mean, Cowell. <laughs> there's a there's there's one bit that that really I spied it the second time I watched it. It's this, this probably one of my favourite scenes in it was when he, he says, has a sort of heart to heart with Gertie about uh, the situation, and then he's obviously sad and he walks away, and then Gertie's little face changes to a crying one and I think it's the only time we see the crying one in the film Sam's gone I mean you'd think those little faces would be for his benefit to show sort of how he's feeling but it's a little like Gertie has a little moment on his own Mm -hmm. where he actually like to all intents and purposes weeps over the situation that he's in and that's a lovely little moment. Yeah, right? definitely. It's true, but I take your point on the, uh, on the on the Kevin Spacey detractor. You know, if we're all thinking about Kevin Spacey while he's doing the voiceover, then there's probably a problem with that. What they need to do is perhaps approach the host of, uh, I don't know, a, a podcast about spoilers. <laughs> but, uh, although although Kevin Spacey did, I think, I think he recorded the uh, the lines for this in like an afternoon. And I think we all know that uh, my reading out of scripts take a bit longer. <laughs> okay, so later, Andy will be taking a look at the careers of some of the movie world's most successful supporting actors. And we'll be talking... Talking more about Moon. That's after this short break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more and help us keep supplied with coffee and cake, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning on buying anything from Amazon, you can do that via the links on our website and we get a few pennies each time. That's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including 2001, A Space Odyssey by Arthur C. Clarke. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help keep our producer Johnny supplied with his favourite celebrity fragrance, Minajesty by Nicki Minaj. Now, back to the show. Lay down, relax and breathe deeply. Okay, well, thanks. While you were taking that short break, I was just admiring Rachel's wonderful handwriting. Well done, Rachel. That's fair. Thank you very much. Gorgeous, right. Uh, okay, so the spoiler team are here, and we are discussing the film Moon, uh, starring Sam Rockwell. And I think we, we can all agree on Sam Rockwell's performance there. I mean, it Ooh, was yeah. just outstanding, wasn't it? 
Um, let's talk about the effects because, uh, as we stated in the uh, the opening uh, introduction, this was uh, filmed during the writers' strike, which I think you know was was bad for a lot of things, but turned out really well for this because there were some uh, some mean effects things. Now, Rachel, you had ex- effects experience, <laughs> <laughs> wig making, all bit, but but, but. Uh, you know, well, we, you, you, it was convincing, wasn't it? No, it was really good. I I love some physical effects, and yeah, there were moments. Oh, it's a model, but no, I really loved it, and it was really well done. That was the buggies, um, wasn't it? When you were looking, yeah, at that. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a model, yeah. But no, I loved it, and it just lent it more heart, I think. And I mean, the quality of, of the production is just fantastic. And yeah, it makes sense now if the, if the writers were on strike and they could pull in all this extra talent. I mean, it's a really low budget. I think there's something like... Five million five, springs to mind. Yeah. No, it was five million. I think it was five million dollars mm, as well, yeah. and, which is nothing. I really like that kind of organic effects and not like loads of CG and stuff. I mean, I talked about Red Dwarf earlier and those great models they used to have on that. And that's yeah. what it rang a bell with me for that. And I used to totally buy into into that one and watching that I didn't think there's a model I, I think yeah they're, they're really in those little spaceships and things it it looks it looks a lot more expensive than it, it was doesn't it mm. definitely I think it's as a debut feature film it's really impressive and then the music as well is just I mean the music's so say the word instrumental (laughs) (laughs) well done it works it works Um, but it really is it's so necessary to to the whole feel of it I think there's music most of the time and it really enhances it and it gives that sort of otherworldly kind of feel to it it's it's just masterful the the, the plot and and the atmosphere combined I don't know about YouTube but after watching it certainly both times I've seen it for days to come I was thinking about it it was on my mind it was it was yeah. it was there and it's how you think well this is right yeah this is how big corporations act isn't it they're evil and <laughs> and this is the kind of thing they would do but then you think well if this technology becomes possible in the future what are the ethics around this and then it really sends you off into a yeah. complete mm-hmm. one doesn't it i mean you start thinking about the ethics of that um I don't. I, that's not going to happen, is it? No, it's it's, it's <laughs> Rachel, really. Rachel, don't worry. I'm not going to send you off into space. Um, no, it's really weird because I was thinking the same thing. Of like, there's this clean energy resource, which is like you know the holy grail of everything right mm. now, because that's why we're heading down the plug hole is because of energy mm-hmm. or lack or lack thereof. And um, people making too many podcasts. Aren't uh, they? Well, yeah, see, what waste of energy. And <laughs> and yeah, so this idea that you can get this clean energy, it only takes one person, and he's a clone. Mm-hmm. It's not a real person this is how they're going to see him and um it's worthy sacrifice for clean energy for the whole of the world to not be at war with each other yeah do it (laughs) (laughs) but no it totally brings in the ethics i mean could a robot not do what he does i don't know but then robots are becoming more intelligent we're looking at gertie he's having feelings that they didn't expect him to have it's 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 a minefield Mm. so yeah oh nice (laughs) Nice. yeah yeah, i mean i wasn't intended but instrumental minefield it's all happening today honestly yeah um, now this is this is tricky, isn't it? Because on previous programs, it's always a bit more juicy, and I think we like the word juicy on this program. <laughs> uh, when you know one of us disagrees or, or, or doesn't like it, they, 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 a problem with this film in a review capacity is that it's too blinking good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I have got well, apart from the Kevin Spacey thing, I've got one negative note. Which is that, what? I, I, th- I think it it. I think it could have maybe lost another ten minutes. And really? I, I know it's no. very short anyway, but what I thought I thought as we went into the the last half hour, I think it over overdid it a bit. It overstretched it. I didn't think there was quite enough to fill that last half hour. No, no, no. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 listeners, please ignore uh, the the comments of the, uh, the the last man. He's obviously <laughs> mad. 
<laughs> it is where it comes. It comes in at ninety-seven minutes, which is the same length. Is the same length as the Groundhog Day as well, which you've already ah. mentioned as well. Now, now there's a thing in this, isn't there? That this should be the perfect length for a movie, unless you, you know you're an imbecile like Andy, <laughs> who, who, who thinks that this was over. It wasn't over stressed at all. No. Um, um, that degenerated. We focus too long on these sort of degeneration and. Uh... Honestly, I really like that, and it, oh. <laughs> no, I, I must be some kind of weirdo, but I really like the the, the generation. Yeah, of him. yeah, I, I liked like it. I just thought it was too uh, teeth. I thought we saw, teeth, teeth, yeah. we saw quite a we, we saw it reiterated quite a lot. Yeah, but it enabled the the new clone to become nurturing of the of the old one, and he was going to sacrifice himself. He was going to yeah. send the, the ill one back to to Earth and. Oh, I loved that whole maternal thing yeah, and taking yeah, his little I, hat off. In, term, in terms of plot, I, I, I couldn't fault it, but I just thought, snip a little bit, oh. maybe not ten minutes, but a little bit. You get ten minutes way. extra music. Come <laughs> on. You see, a funny, a funny physical thing. I've, like, Rachel, I've started leaning over to your side of the studio Ooh, now. As, as if I have noticed that. Veer against Andy now. I just, like, <laughs> this is, I just wanted legroom, really. I think this is, uh, this is uh, the, the lunar side of this mm. is, is, is we're all going mad we're all going to start we're going to I start think Andy's on the dark side of the moon <laughs> <laughs> and he's back on my side <laughs> right and normality is resumed right okay now before landing the lead role in moon it looked like Sam Rockwell was condemned to be always the bridesmaid never the bride with a series of supporting roles however many actors have made a successful career out of playing second fiddle Andy has been taking a closer look at the careers of some notable supporting actors Check it out, man. Anything you guys want, we got. Anything you want to do, do it. You know what I'm saying? Anything. You got any cigarettes? Regular or menthol? Although Sam Rockwell has garnered much acclaim in the two and a half decades since he portrayed the role of Head Thug in the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film, he has only sporadically been cast in leading roles. With his wantonly goofy, boyish energy, Rockwell has instead carved out a successful career as a reliably magnetic supporting actor, turning up in the sort of roles that make viewers go, oh great, he's in it. Often bagging more interesting roles or better lines than the leads, some of the greatest actors in cinema history have excelled in smaller but more boldly drawn performances. It's hard to choose just a handful of these fascinating performers, but here are four so-called character actors who have particularly captured my imagination. Supporting performances. Performances without which the stars would sometimes shine, not quite so brightly. 1939 is frequently named as Hollywood's greatest year, with the ten films nominated for the Best Picture Oscar all considered classics of the medium. Any film buffs who watch these movies in quick succession will soon begin to notice one actor popping up regularly in smaller roles. That man is Thomas Mitchell, a rotund, avuncular embrace of a man who never fails to make any film in which he appears a warmer and more welcoming experience. A favourite of director Frank Capra, Mitchell is perhaps best known for the role of Uncle Billy in It's a Wonderful Life. Where's my hat? Where's my hat? Oh, oh thank you, George. This is mine, the metal one. Although Capra also cast him in Lost Horizon in his breakthrough role as swindler Henry Barnard and as press secretary Diz Moore in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But it was Mitchell's work with director John Ford which gained him the most critical acclaim, as well as two Oscar nominations, the second of which he won for his 1939 performance in Stagecoach. First to Thomas Mitchell for his brilliant portrayal in Stagecoach. I didn't know I was quite that good. Stagecoach was the film that made a star of John Wayne, 
but we can forgive it that for also giving us Mitchell's powerhouse performance as verbose alcoholic Doc Boone. Are you Doc Boone? I certainly am. A role that allows him free reign to demonstrate his comedic prowess, as well as his knack for portraying the pathos inherent in a flawed but sympathetic man. As the Doc himself might put it, his eloquent articulations are a preposterously pleasing prospect for connoisseurs of the precisely delineated characterization. Thank you, sir. Professional compliments are always pleasing. Another actor who has notably traded on his girth and good nature is John Goodman. To my mind, one of the most brilliant and underrated character actors in the business. Although Goodman has appeared in starring roles, these have tended to be in lightweight family films like King Ralph or The Flintstones, which, while demonstrating his lightness of touch and effortless charm, provided little chance to really exercise his acting chops. Goodman became a household name during his decade as Dan Connor in the sitcom Roseanne, and also turned in a hilarious performance as Lewis the Bear in Talking Heads' musical True Stories. But outside of these lovable family men and gentle galoot roles, he was proving himself as an actor of great depth and diversity. Central to unlocking this potential was Goodman's working relationship with the Coen brothers, with whom he has worked six times, each time in a very different capacity. Goodman's performances for the Coen brothers draw as much on his intimidating size as his folksy charm, perhaps most celebrated for his extraordinary depiction in The Big Lebowski of a gung-ho bowling fanatic with a Vietnam obsession and surprisingly fragile feelings. I got buddies who died face down in the muck so that you and I can enjoy this family restaurant. Goodman has also portrayed a violent, cycloptic Bible salesman, an overbearing ex-con and an odious jazz musician. But undoubtedly his best performance, and one which should surely have seen him nominated for an Oscar, was in Barton Fink as the amiable Charlie Meadows, whose degeneration into the psychopathic decapitator Carl Madman Munt manages to draw on every facet of Goodman's extensive repertoire. Munt, show yourself! From his cuddly panda bear affability to his physically imposing capacity to overwhelm. It's a virtuoso piece of acting, from his first cheery greeting to that final terrifying charge down a flaming hallway. I will show you the life of the mind! One of the finest actors of the 50s and 60s, Thelma Ritter was condemned to supporting roles because of her age. Having trained as an actor, Ritter took a hiatus to raise her two children, beginning her screen career at the age of 45 with a small uncredited appearance in the Christmas classic Miracle on 34th Street. Despite her lack of screen time, Ritter's natural scene-stealing abilities brought her to the attention of writer-director Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who wrote the role of wise-cracking maid Birdie in All About Eve specifically for her. The film was a huge hit and so was Ritter, who was nominated for an Oscar. This was to be the first of six Oscar nominations in the next 12 years, none of which she won. Ever the good sport, after her first few losses, Ritter began hosting Come and Watch Me Lose Again parties for her friends on Oscar night. Reportedly as witty as her characters and as enjoyable to work with as she was to watch, Ritter appeared in many more high-profile films such as Pillow Talk, The Birdman of Alcatraz and Rear Window, the latter role being specifically adapted for her. Look, Mr Jeffries, I'm not an educated woman, but I can tell you one thing. When a man and a woman see each other and like each other, they ought to come together. Wham! Like a couple of taxis on Broadway. While usually seen in comedy roles, Ritter proved herself as a very fine dramatic actor in Pick Up on South Street, a gritty film noir in which she plays the part of professional informant Mo Williams. Her death scene, in which she goads communist spy Richard Kiley into shooting her, 
is among the finest moments of her impressive career. You threatening to blow my head off? Ask a silly question, you get a dopey look. Sadly, that career was cut short just days before her 67th birthday, when Ritter suffered a fatal heart attack, robbing Hollywood of one of its finest and most beloved character actors of all time. Look, mister. I'm so tired. You'd be doing me a big favour if you'd blow my head off. Finally, no list of great supporting actors would be complete without the greatest of them all, Claude Rains. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. Born in Camberwell, Rains taught at RADA, where his students included John Gielgud and Laurence Olivier. Moving to Hollywood, Rains became one of the most popular character actors of his day, receiving four Oscar nominations but winning none. Occasionally getting a lead role, Rain's most famous central performances are in The Invisible Man and Phantom of the Opera, ironically both roles in which he remains largely obscured from view. Rain's particularly excelled at playing well-spoken, complex villains, as he did in Capra's Mr Smith Goes to Washington, a film that seemed to have the monopoly on great supporting performers. But perhaps his best role was as the corrupt police captain in Michael Curtiz's Casablanca, the character to whom Humphrey Bogart utters the immortal line, Louis? I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Obviously not content with already having acted James Stewart off the screen in Mr Smith Goes to Washington, Reigns does the same to Bogart in this well-loved classic, and though it may be bogey that most people remember in retrospect, Reigns elicits the greater response when they're actually watching the film, as any great scene stealer should. Let's not forget that Ingrid Bergman was in Casablanca as well. Lucky first she got on that plane. Nevertheless, Rain shared the screen with her again four years later in Hitchcock's Notorious and thoroughly upstaged everyone else in the movie. You can run, Ingrid, but you can't hide. As time goes by. Superb. Thank you very much for that, Andy. Uh, towards the end, let's steer this, uh, this, this rocket ship towards the end. I have this brilliant... Terrible memory for films where, again, like this, I'd watched this three or four years ago and then I'd completely forgotten the ending. I knew that there were two of these people or more clones and this, that and the other. I knew that all that was going to happen, but I'd forgotten how it ended. And I'm very thankful for me drinking my brain away in the 90s for causing <laughs> this, you know, great loop that it means I can watch films every three or four years. You know, it means it means I can I, I, I'll never run out of things to watch. But... I was still on the edge of my seat watching this and watching the ending because he gets in the capsule, ready to launch himself off. Then he has another idea and he gets out, doesn't he? And he steers the um, the, the, the mining vessels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, uh, one of them towards the communication towers and causes issues and problems there. Uh, but that's just all seconds before the door's about to open and who's going to come through there? Because we've seen, haven't we? We've seen some of these people uh, and they look like big thugs that are going to come and kill them. And, uh, and we know that's what's going to happen. So are we on the edge of your seat there, Rachel? I was because I'd forgotten as well. I'd got so hung up on the music because I listened to the soundtrack quite a lot. And uh, I remember the clones, remembered that, remember the performance, remember the blood down as costume and all this couldn't remember the end at all and so i oh know it was really good i'm glad that i forgot obviously it's so much to do with my age it's sort of <laughs> slowly going out of my head all these things but now i was on the edge of my seat and i thought oh god he's got out why has he got out i can't remember why he's got out and get back in and um no so it's really good i like that it can still hold the tension yeah good stuff what about you andy i mean obviously you you're 
this bizarre opinion that the film was too long. <laughs> uh, but uh, but what, what did you think about the ending? Were you, were you sat on the edge of your seat there? I, I was, yeah. Those those things where, where someone at the last minute has to go and do something, always, I mean, I, I officially, when I'm watching them, I go, oh, no, I hate it when this happens. But obviously, I love it when that happens because it gets <laughs> yeah. my heart pounding and everything. It's It's like... It makes me think of still like every time I watch Back to the Future, I think he's not going to get back at the end of it, and because I think, well, but why this time he doesn't get down there and plug it in? And I did it both times. I watched this film and I watched them in like that separated only by about a week. And the second time, I still was like, no, don't get get back in there, get back in there quick, because. Somehow, even though you know he is going to do it, there's something in the back of your head that thinks, well, maybe, maybe mm. this time he won't get there. <laughs> yeah. So what happened next? He flies off and in the background, you know, it, it seems like the, the corporation are being sort of taken to task. Um, but also the very sort of last line um, in it is that someone's phoning into some kind of radio talk show and sort of saying, no, he's an immigrant. No, he's a madman. You know, let's, yeah. you know, mm. let, let's lock him up and that kind of thing. And, you know, I mean, you know, that's what would happen as well, wouldn't mm. you? You know, if, if we found out now that that was going on now, I don't know. Would I believe it? Would, mm. would you believe that it was happening? No, I don't think people would believe it. And I certainly wouldn't believe it. If somebody came down, I'd be like, shut up. <laughs> and surely he's got a limited lifespan as well. That's what kept playing on my mind. Was, oh, God, he's only got three years and he's going to start degenerating. And, oh, maybe they'll have fixed it. Maybe they'll find out. I was really worried for him. I was really concerned for him. So what did you think? What do you think happened when he got, when he got back to Earth? Do you think he, he managed to... Well, it, obviously, he would die after three years, I suppose. But well, I don't know. I had this little hope. I like a happy ending, <laughs> so um, I had. I think he would just be ignored, and I think eventually, I think the original Sam would take him under his wing and look after him because he's clearly a caring person. I know he's mm. got anger issues, um, necessarily, but um, he's also very caring because that's his nature. He wanted to nurture his clone, so I think he would go and go and get him. And say, Come and be with us. And even if he only had three years, at least he'd have three years of having a nice time with his his 15-year-old daughter, Eve. Mm -hmm. Is that right? And, um, yeah, and he'd be part of something. So that's my little hope that that would happen. (laughs) So I think we, we all know what we think about this film. We get into our rating scales. Now, this are this this week... <laughs> Quite simply, my my favourite order of planets, right? My favourite planets. You have a favourite order of planets, of course. Okay, right, and Earth certainly isn't one of them, right? Okay, so um, Venus, which I think is excellent, right? <laughs> Mars, which I think is okay. I'm, I'm open minded about it, and Uranus. <laughs> come on, keep it clean. Uranus, which is bad. Okay, it's bad. It's bad. Okay. Okay, right. So, um, but you agree with me, Venus is excellent, isn't it? The only thing is you can see Venus. You can see on a regular <laughs> basis, true. you can look up and see Venus. And I, I find that, I find that comforting. Oh. Moon's too obvious. Right. Okay, so, um, oh, this is, this is almost just too easy. Right, we're all going to say Venus, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, well, thank you very much for listening. And we'll leave you now with the ecstatic words of our genial poet, Andy Goulding. For those who grew up with the race to first put a man into space and who watched that long schlep to take one giant step, the moon is a riveting place. But for those who were born later on, a lot of that magic has gone. For a man such as I, that big empty sky has little to hang dreams upon. The attraction of space exploration diminished with each generation as we watched it keel over from overexposure in movies, TV and claymation. When a rocket flies past like a comet and we gaze up and wonder who's on it, the old and the bald in think Armstrong and Aldrin, and I think of Wallace and Gromit. Ground control to Major Tom. 
listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher, and I played the keyboards on it, with additional music from the Moon original soundtrack. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, Click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us, sharing the links to our show or writing a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we're taking a look at Season 2 of Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton's dark comedy anthology, Inside Number 9. And was he found guilty? After several hours, his tongue was made loose. Power persuasion. It was cut from his head with tailor's scissors, to which he died. If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk, find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. Time to go home, you know what I mean? That's it. Over and out. Rock and roll. God bless America. <laughs> <laughs>